Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think uh, the unprecedented level of government support and the way that lenders and consumers alike have been able to kind of help keep the ship afloat but would agree that it definitely could have been a lot worse than what we've seen up to date. But to your point, there are still plenty of consumers, I think, hurting out there and hopefully are getting that assistance as they need it. Welcome back to How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about lending strategies across the credit lifecycle and around the world. And there isn't a bigger market in the world than the US, and there probably hasn't been a bigger time of chaos than right now. So in today's episode, I catch up with Matt Comos and ask him about the state of the US consumer credit economy as we look towards a post-COVID revival. Matt is a Vice President of Financial Services Research and Consulting for TransUnion in the US. So as well as more than 20 years of experience in consumer lending as an entrepreneur, a consultant and an analyst, Matt has access to data that gives him a true bird's eye view of the market, making him an ideal candidate for the show. Join me in a second for our discussion. Brendan, what's up, dude? Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Life's been interesting. Uh, you know, it's been a weird year, of course. But yeah, I mean, I guess that that's been a key topic of discussion now with the last year and a half, uh, all COVID all the time in the credit markets as well. And yeah. you've obviously, as you say, things are opening up now. And there are obviously still far too many aftershocks to say COVID's behind us, but at least we're at transition stage. You've had a lot of data, both real data and survey data to keep your eye on through the crisis. And I think two key points that would be nice to talk to and get your view of the American market with is one, what is the status of the consumer credit economy having been through uh, what in some ways is the worst economic crisis in living memory? What did the market suffer? How have people gone through with accommodations and, and how's that all looking? And then I think maybe after that, we can pick up on this versus the financial crisis or the subprime financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Sure. Yeah, you know, so we've seen a, a lot of interesting dynamics uh, in the in the consumer credit market. When when COVID first started, you know, if you think about back to April, even at the end of March, April, May of last year, there's a lot of uncertainty. And so what we saw was generally as consumers went into lockdown, their spending halted, people were not traveling, they weren't going out to eat. And so we saw actually a lot of credit activity really just fell off a cliff. And then you couple that with the fact that many lenders were pulling back as well, right? The, the typical economic shock type of reaction for le the lending ecosystem is to pull back and limit the amount of access to credit. Now, what was interesting 
over that same time frame, we actually saw while auto, credit card, and like personal loans kind of took a dive, mortgages stayed very strong. And a lot of that was because of the low interest rate environment and the strong health of home prices. And those have continued to go up. You know, even as we talk through this transition period, we so we've seen a ton of refinance activity as well as new purchase activity. That growth has continued. Now we think that the mortgage side is probably going to cool off through the rest of this year and it's going to kind of taper off. When we look at credit cards, auto lending, uh, unsecured personal loans, those have started to rebound a bit. So they're not yet at pre-COVID levels. But we did see through the first quarter, the balances were starting to come back. We saw through the end of last year, originations were starting to come back. You know, But there, even within those different industries, there's some interesting dynamics. In auto lending, for example, there's been a lot of supply chain issues. So chip manufacturing, there's been a disruption there, which has created supply issues on the actual automobile side. And so that has driven prices up. So if I'm a consumer... And I decide, well, with the low interest rates, I can now afford maybe a little bit more expensive car. Uh, It might not be available, or I might have to turn to a used car. So it's been a very interesting dynamic in the auto space. And, um, you know, our auto leaders feel like this will probably work itself out in this the rest of this year. But again, it becomes that supply chain question. Now, what we saw, you know, from a delinquency standpoint, and, you know, you, you referenced accommodations. That has really helped the U.S. consumer. Really across all major products, we've not seen delinquency spike, which again is unusual when you know we hit 14% unemployment from a peak standpoint last year. It has been rebounding, right? So employment has started coming back as economies start reopening. But one of the challenges through all of last year was many different geographies within the U.S. were kind of reopening and then reclosing and reopening. So it was kind of the stop and start thing that was going on. And the uncertainty about, will I have a job? Or if I had my hours cut, we would have anticipated typically that delinquency would start going crazy, but that didn't happen. So lenders used accommodation programs or payment deferral programs to help stem that tide of delinquency and really help the consumer bridge the gap between that unemployment and getting work again. What also helped was the massive amount of stimulus and government assistance that was provided to the U.S. consumers. So the government stimulus being provided, as well as unemployment benefits, actually created, for some consumers, a higher income. And so they had much more cash flow. And what we saw happening was, you know, with the reduction in spending, many consumers were continuing to pay down their debt which also helps push down delinquency. So it's been a flush of liquidity in the market, but then also these accommodation programs. So you know, many consumers, for example, they might not be paying their mortgage. So they're putting that money towards their credit card bills or their auto loan. And we think that's really what's helped keep delinquency at bay over this whole timeframe. Now, the current state of things, you know, many consumers are going to be coming off of their mortgage accommodations in the next couple of months. So we're kind of keeping an eye on what happens when those consumers have to start making payments, not only on their mortgage, but then the rest of their bills. You know, we did a, a, an analysis to kind of estimate those consumers are going to basically experience a price shock of over 200% in terms of their monthly obligations from where they're at today. You know, so when that mortgage starts becoming due, that's what we're going to see how the consumer kind of reacts. 
And then the other question is, you know, for the other products, as they roll off of accommodation, what are some of the trends we're seeing? And interestingly, you know, the consumers who took advantage of those programs early in the pandemic that have come out, they're actually performing pretty well. So, you know, we, we haven't seen them go delinquent on the trades that were on accommodation or the other items in their wallet. Consumers who are coming out more recently, who aren't able to maybe lean on some of that liquidity because the last round of stimulus kind of went out a couple months ago. So there is a gap now from an income standpoint. So it just becomes a question of, will we see the employment rebound? Can consumers get back into the workforce to be able to start servicing their debt? So that's really what we're keeping an eye on over the coming months. That sort of puts into light how much more complex the US market is. England, Scotland, and Wales had their own rules, but they were largely the same. The government support program came in, it was a standard program. And in terms of timing, we don't really have a big regional problem. So places like the financial center in London might have hurt a little more as people left from home, but everything opened and closed simultaneously. And and largely we had the same government programs, which again, unprecedented level of government funding, unprecedented levels of people out of work. But at least it was one level to to watch, whereas you've got fifty uh, combinations of, of <laughs> right, uh, to, right. To, to try and keep uh, an eye on. And I think what is interesting is you know, lockdown came in initially in the first months or two. It was never clear what sort of stimulus was going to come from any national government. Then they all started coming up with plans, encouraging payment holidays and such. Yes, you see, there's a combination. A lot of people said, "Well, I'm actually spending less," and if you hadn't lost your job, you're probably net benefiting because there's no right. temptation. There's no way to go out and spend. You could take payment holidays. So it, it is interesting to hear that, you know, that first batch caught up in that confusion and actually now seem to be recovering. have got their minds around their new budgeting, perhaps have adjusted by cutting back on spend and are now doing quite well, whereas others perhaps maybe left it too late, maybe used up a lot of their savings and now get hit in a worse position because when the crisis hit in the UK, it was one of the better times it could have. You know, the, the position of the market was actually pretty strong. We haven't had a lot of you know, really strong economic growth, but it had been slow and steady. And since the last financial crisis, you know, it had been recovering and in terms of risk of the debt and, and uh, amounts held by households and things, the, the housing market was all pretty solid. We could absorb quite a lot. Consumers were in a relatively stable position on average. And that that was now 18 months ago. And I guess what's worth keeping in mind is people that are hit now are being hit with perhaps not quite as strong a foundation because they've got 18 months of trouble uh, before them as well. Yeah, I would. Yeah. So first point, I would agree at the US. I mean, we were coming out of our longest expansion in history, you know, from an economic standpoint. So yeah, the the US consumer was actually, we and we talked about this a lot was in a good financial position, generally speaking, um, debt levels had kept growing, but income was keeping up relatively well with that. So, kind of the debt to income picture was was pretty healthy, and the job market was great. You know, unemployment was down in the three percent range. Um, we hadn't seen that in in a long time. And um, you know, I was recently reading a report, at least in the U.S., it was actually one of the shortest recessions that we've, technically speaking, that we've ever seen. But it's that that initial jump of to 14% unemployment. And it the recovery happened quickly somewhat, but 
to your point, right? You have many consumers that are forced to stay at home. You're not tempted to spend money. So you probably end up net benefit. And, and the accommodation programs were kind of made available to anyone. So what we have is a diverse set of consumers taking advantage of these programs. And some of them probably didn't need it, but they took it as a precautionary measure. And in the confusion or just the uncertainty of those early days of like not knowing what is this thing. And, and I can remember times where it was like, yeah, we'll be back to normal in a couple months. And, you know, it, it didn't really pan out that way. And so I think lenders kind of made that conscientious decision that this has to be something that's going to be around until we're really in the clear. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we were talking a bit about the Delta variant that creates new uncertainty, right? I mean, there's, there's a sense in my mind that like, how much more might we have to go back to lockdown measures again, you know, and, and in the States, there isn't like a federally mandated thing. Each state is kind of making up their own rules. And, and that happened even with the government support, right? It, each state could decide to provide additional unemployment benefits or not. So it does make things a bit more complex and in certain areas. There were certain areas within the US before this that were already struggling economically. And so I think that really hit, you know, hit hard. And there's been this focus within the service industry, which is different than when we saw in the last recession. You know, we see a concentrated effect of this pandemic. Whereas I think in the last recession, it was it didn't really matter necessarily what industry you worked in. You had, a, I think, a wider impact zone. If you work in technology or the credit space or, you know, a lot of the, these types of jobs, we just shifted to working remote, but we didn't lose our jobs, you know, so it's a bit different this time around. Yeah, it's almost a new challenge where suddenly the key risk is, well, what segment does somebody work in? Right. And that's typically, it's, it's not something that's really available, even within banks, um, government supports, well. Uh, September these programs in, but a lot of the programs worked on that idea that we'll you know we'll do it for a few months and then it'll be over. And, right. Yeah. If this is the end of it, then it's probably fine. But as you say, it's not. We're not clear yet if this is uh, the end of it. So it has been a weird uh, impact on an industry, and it's not something you can easily shift to because you can't move to a new state where right. there is demand. You can't go to a different type of restaurant you can't work go from restaurants to hotels and um, I think is a good reminder of to lenders about the idea of you know affordability and also on long-term relationships so I think what I hope is while I hope we never have to do such wide-scale uh, accommodations right what I hope is that the success of them we saw them work in the UK sounds like they're working in the US might give lenders some hope in collections to help consumers that do fall into financial trouble in a normal economic cycle. Right. Yeah, exactly. I guess one of the other key things, and probably one that saved people the most, is that, as you said, house prices have actually risen. So, you know, the last crisis was a housing crisis. And you know, your mortgage, if you have one, is your biggest single outlay in the month, but also your biggest potential wealth building tool mm -hmm. for yeah. the future. So, in the current crisis, people have, one, had the option to not pay the mortgage and therefore save a huge portion of their monthly outgoing. So even if they took a payment holiday for one month or two months, that's a meaningful amount versus not paying an installment loan. So having that mortgage there has been really beneficial. And from lenders, the security has stayed there. It's 
you've had no problems of masses of uh, consumers going uh, underwater on their mortgages, which I think has been a great sort of safety net for for all of us. But you've looked at the payment hierarchy for consumers in this crisis. So as consumers have fallen into financial trouble, most of us have a number of obligations, a credit card, a personal loan, an auto loan, and and a mortgage. Which of those do we let default? So you've been able to see how that's changed in this crisis. And perhaps if you can give a little bit of insight on how people have been thinking through their various debts now and maybe contrast that to 2007, 2008. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Yeah, so we we did we revived our payment hierarchy study, which is something we've been looking at since or as early as 2007. And we actually kind of looked at the, the, what I would call the original construct, which was looking at mortgage, credit card, and auto loans. What we used to think was consumers would rank order in terms of they would pay their mortgage first, then their auto loan, then their credit card. And it kind of ranks in terms of what you would think from an asset perspective. But when we first did the payment hierarchy, we actually found that auto loan was ranked first, then mortgage, and then credit card housing was at the crux of the last recession. And so what we had happen was home values collapsed. And so for many consumers, not only did they lose the equity they had built up in their home, but now that this asset that they believe you know was worth a certain value, all of a sudden went down to 50% of that value or 60% of that value. And so many consumers in the last crisis actually walked from their homes. They just said, I'm not paying it. And what we've found was that mortgage actually fell behind credit card. So our new ranking became auto loans, credit cards, mortgages. And that was really surprising to us, but it made sense because for many consumers, they had to use their credit card as a form of liquidity, right? That gave them access to buying groceries if they were out of work, paying for whatever, and they might still need their car to get get to a job. When we did this refresh, that new dynamic we saw back in the last recession actually reverted in 2014. So we actually, as home prices started coming back up, we saw that consumers started reprioritizing their mortgage ahead of credit card. And what we saw, you know, actually starting back in like the first quarter of 2017, we first see that mortgage overtakes auto as the primary payment. So the the phenomenon of mortgage becoming the highest ranked actually started well before this pandemic. And then what we saw in the pandemic was the separation between auto and mortgage delinquency got even bigger. It's likely due to a number of factors, as we talked about the accommodations for sure, you know, suppressing that delinquency, but also you had so many people now working from home that they had to protect their home. 
they might be willing to maybe let one of their autos go because they weren't going anywhere, you know, and, and people weren't taking road trips and they weren't worried about their car. They had to make sure that they had a place to work. That coupled with the home price index in the US, it's unbelievable the growth that we've seen. And that period in 2017, when we look at the rate of change in home price index, that's where we see a really big jump and it's continued on. So it really ties very closely with what we would expect as those home prices go up, consumers prioritize their mortgage. Now, what's interesting, we, we in the past have always seen a pretty strong correlation in these kind of dynamics with unemployment as well. And it was tracking closely with unemployment too. Now, with that spike in unemployment we saw, we didn't see any shift. We actually continued to see that, that greater push of you know, mortgage separating from auto. So that was interesting to us just to, to see those dynamics at play. And again, very different than the last recession where housing was kind of at the the middle of the crisis and was the you know a lot of the cause of the crisis whereas this time housing was not really a, a factor it was a totally ex- different exogenous factor at play here and the home became so much more important in the UK where obviously it's a country that's traditionally very reliant on public transport and because this was a, a health uh, crisis and people wanted to avoid being close to others we saw a sudden demand increase for auto loans so again normally a recession, people aren't going to think about, oh, I should go and buy a second car. Right. But you mentioned earlier, there's supply chain issues. And also, I think people were looking for a car to replace a bus trip to the office rather than a family mm-hmm. car. So those combined meant the, the auto loan industry data just shows that I think it's six-year-old cars was where the big spike was. And cars a year old or younger. So basically new cars are down year over year. People couldn't get stock onto the floor, but also most of the demand was for for older, cheaper cars, which for lenders also changes because that's you know, changes who you borrow from. So while the industry while the industry grew very well and seemed to survive COVID without any of the trouble other products had, it wasn't every lender, which does I think serve as a good reminder of these sort of hierarchies. They're not fixed based on the pure merits of any one product. It does depend on the nature of the crisis. One of the risks, I guess, that was mentioned well, when I was working with it in the UK, but you've brought up here as well, people have been taking some payment holidays and or payment freezes. Some industries were easier to get those in than others, uh, or at least it made more sense perhaps to get one for your mortgage than for an installment loan that's only maybe $50 a month. Have you got any data or just any chatter from the industry about whether they think that's masking some delinquencies, or do we feel like it's been going long enough now that we're actually pretty confident that despite the fact it was a bit of a scramble for payment accommodations, the delinquency numbers themselves are fairly reliable now that actually uh, most of that hiding of impact is washed through? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's still a mixed bag in the US in terms of how lenders are thinking about it. We, we talk with a lot of our, you know, the lending community uh, regularly, and some of them believe that we're kind of past the, you know, the concern and the wave and the number of consumers that still have an accommodation are going to be coming off is reduced so much that they're not concerned about it. Then we have a whole other area of the kind of credit ecosystem where the lenders are saying, you know, I still feel like there's hidden risk in the system. And how do I have to think about that? You know, and so We've been trying to 
understand that for a while. We actually just released a study a couple of weeks ago looking at could we, if we look at the behavior of the consumer within the first couple of months of them taking the accommodation, would that help us better differentiate risk in the long run? And that's actually, we found, for example, if the consumer was opening new loans or paying down their existing debt or exiting their the program early, making payments while they were in accommodation. And it's not surprising, right? Th- these are all rational things that would make sense that these types of consumers are likely lower risk, but we are able to prove it empirically. And if you have that concern, you might want to look at your portfolio to say, okay, can I better differentiate risk? But you know, the message is understanding what happens with that consumer within the first couple of months of them entering that program can help uncover that underlying risk. Again, and then there's those other lenders that say, I'm not too worried about it. It's not a sizable problem anymore. So it's definitely been a mix in the industry. I guess it's that same problem of measuring at the portfolio versus the individual level. So right. the UK market, I think, is in a similar position where if you talk about it in industry, most of the payment freezes have been paid down. Most of them were paid down within sort of six months at most. And the majority of people are back on normal payment programs. But even if it's 1% of people are now six months, nine months, haven't paid their mortgage, that 1% of people, if you say, if you haven't paid your mortgage for nine months, realistically, what is the route back? Yeah. If you get a job today, nine months worth of mortgage, even six months worth of mortgage payment, at this point, they might have every intention today, which is the, like the silver lining. They, they're still right. working with you. They're communicating. But it is very much a, a collections pro- problem now. And given that it's a mortgage, this is not a portfolio that has lots of room to absorb those sort of losses. So I think are the numbers, at, you know, delinquency numbers at the industry reflective of true risk? Probably pretty close. However, there'll probably be some consumers that are in, in dire straits. As we came out of the last recession in the US, equity in homes evaporated the access to that sort of credit that homeowners used to have against their mortgage disappeared. So people started coming to look for traditional installment loans, but a lot of installment loan providers had either burnt their fingers in the recession or or just got wary. So they'd stepped back and there was that demand supply gap and fintech stepped into that oversimplification of the story. But basically, fintech said we can make those loans and changed the industry and revived it. Now we've had another recession where lenders have been forced to reevaluate their models. Borrowers potentially have rethought what is important and what's not important to them. We feel like this might also create uh, any openings for new lending providers or any shifts in consumer patterns, or as things pick up, they'll pick up looking largely uh, the same as before. Yeah, it's a really good perspective because, you know, typically, right, the economic disruption, it often leads to opportunity. I think what we've been seeing in the US, it's it's a product space that I think is already very popular in the UK, uh, the buy now, pay later space. It, it, it existed in the US before the pandemic, but, you know, you have the convergence of consumers being forced to, to move online to do shopping, you know, so even though they were locked down. I think many consumers were still buying home exercise equipment or 
redoing their homes, whatever the case may be. And you have the buy now, pay later space, you know, where it creates this convenient option as you're going to check out to be able to pay in four or no interest, you know, whatever. There's so many different options now. We've started to see that emerge in the US. So it's something we're keeping an eye on and studying a bit to, to understand, is it really going to grow? Does it, does it present a threat to the card market, to the private label market? Is it augmenting the consumer's purchasing behavior? And then as we start to reopen, I think the question becomes, will consumer, you know, now that consumers have gotten used to um, that way of shopping, will that stick around or do consumers go back out and are spending at brick and mortar stores? They want to go back to a mall because they haven't been to one in 18 months or whatever the case may be. But we're also seeing lenders and these buy now, pay later, they're starting to, to potentially offer that point of sale experience at the brick and mortar. So, you know, that's where I think we're starting to see that response. And it, it will really just depend on that consumer preference. Yeah, as you say, it's the big story in the UK as well. And I think we roughly got about a decade's worth of movement towards online spend in the first months of lockdown. So from about 20% of transactions being online to about 30%. Some of that was forced because you couldn't go to a pub or a restaurant, those disappeared. So yeah, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily that big a, a move. But I think what it did successfully was get a lot of people more familiar with the other types of online commerce. So everybody might have been yeah. shopping at Amazon, but the grocery stores, all those sort of more mundane things where we all know you could go to a grocery store and order it. But I think it broke those barriers and that's going to have help and all the fashion so here, buy now, pay yeah. is uh, very big in the fashion market, and all that. Yeah, instead of walking around the store and looking at goods, it pushed people online, and it, I think it pushed a lot of retailers to improve their online experiences uh, that they offered. Even before this hit, public data, if you look at the credit card balance growth in the UK, it's been about two percent year over year for the last couple of years, which is basically inflation. People have been getting rid of cash. But mm -hmm. card has credit card hasn't been picking up a lot. So they were already struggling to appeal widely to the market. And all of a sudden, you've had these brands emerging that are doing nice and simple, interest-free, two, three months. Yeah, I'm not looking for anything complicated. I don't want 24 months to pay it down. Right. Give me just three months to split it. Yeah, I mean, before the crisis hit, our message to card operators was, this is going to be about finding growth. And then the message through the crisis was well, balances dropped 10% overall. You're going to be a lot of people looking for growth. Uh, right. And now you're looking for growth alongside these players who've had this perfect storm where they are emerging. They're, they're the hot new thing, but also everybody's been forced online and all the strongholds of credit cards, travel and entertainment are kind of shut. That said, again, completely oversimplifying it, but it is something they can replicate pretty easy, not necessarily from a business point of view. Obviously, the economics are harder to get right than the experience, but to just compete by offering a two-month, three-month payment option is something that you'd think they could match quite easy. In fact, when I was in South Africa 20 years ago, all credit cards, we used to have straight, where you're paying it on the credit card as normal, a budget, where you'd say, I want this individual transaction over three, six, or 12 months. They would charge you full interest rates, but it would be three, six, 12 months. So it'd be interesting to see if something more akin to that arises where cards come in and 
we're starting to see that a bit in the U.S. So there are some card issuers that are moving towards that model where, you know, you, you can split balances into an installment payment, you know, over a shorter period or consumers have voiced that that's what they like. So I think that, yeah, I think card issuers awaken to that fact and, and have started to respond. At the same time, as we see opportunity for these new players in a market where digital, you know, first becomes kind of the mindset of the consumer, the reality is fraudsters are going to look to exploit that. And so I think that's where a lot of their concern is, is, you know, okay, if I don't traditionally create a digital experience or, you know, an online type of engagement, because there's plenty of lenders in the U.S. who, who don't have that totally figured out. Their biggest, you know, one of their biggest concerns or questions is, well, how do I prevent, you know, the fraud side of things, you know, and then you couple that with the growth in synthetic ID. So that has been kind of a, a negative impact to the industry. Many of them are aware of it and, and they're making efforts to try to help thwart that kind of activity. Cool. Well, thank you very much. I will uh, chat to you again soon. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. After three country-centric shows, uh, first with China, then Georgia, and now the USA, next week we're going to take a deeper dive into a core discipline of lending, collections. So please join me and Terry Franklin for that next Thursday. This has been How to Lend Money to Strangers, a podcast about lending strategies around the world and across the credit lifecycle. see i forgot to push record on my my mixer so i record on zoom and on and on the thing for just yeah. this reason i just looked here now in the corner of my eye and i see a big green flashing light <laughs> that should be right. hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.